Welcome to Curve on Get Radio. This is Gabe Hudson, and this is my podcast. Today on the show, I'm super excited. We have a legit Gen X icon, poet and memoirist Maggie Smith, whose new memoir, You Could Make This Place Beautiful, came out recently and instantly hit the New York Times bestseller list. It's an extraordinary brave work of truth-telling of the highest order. I think Maggie's new memoir is destined to become a kind of classic that's passed around amongst friends and beloveds in the same manner that Joan Didion's Year of Magical Thinking gets passed around. also want to quickly thank friend of the show, Sari Botten, who is the editor of the magazine Oldster for connecting me to Maggie Smith. If you have not subscribed to the newsletter for this podcast, go over to Substack and find Kurt Vonnegut Radio and sign up for the newsletter. What I find amazing about this book is the courage, the bravery, and just the structure is super inspiring. I love it to pieces. There are many treasures in what Maggie Smith is saying. There is a feeling I get from reading your work, a sense that joy, comedy, humor is a big part of your life. It sounds like when you and the family are at the dinner table, there are almost these impromptu performances by everybody. Honestly, we're a goofy family, and I think it really does come from my dad. My dad is such a weird, like genuinely idiosyncratic, strange, dry humor kind of person. I think my first real understanding of the power of language had nothing to do with books or poems. It had to do with how you could be quick-witted at the dinner table and be the one who brings a story or joke full circle by mentioning something later as a punchline that somebody brought up two hours earlier. And so bringing the whole thing, like sewing it up, I realized that I was the person at the dinner table who could do that. My dad was like, oh yeah, Maggie's quick. And so our dinners at my house now are a lot like that, where we tease each other and have these riffs. Last night, I put my daughter to bed, put her to bed. She's almost 15. She's in high school. I was worried we were going to wake her brother up. We could not stop laughing. She laughed so hard, water came out of her nose. We were laughing so hard at bedtime last night. She came downstairs this morning to make breakfast. She's like, I don't remember what we were laughing about. And I said, I don't either. Such a big part of our lives. Comedy is all about timing. And so is poetry, really. So... Even just with the suspense and a line break or with a really killer last line and ending yeah. called and how you land the plane or the kind of humor you can use as an umbrella in a title. So even if the pulp itself isn't funny, even if the poem is dead serious and frankly sad, I think yeah. a lot of the way that you construct a poem and the way that you construct a joke now that I'm thinking about it, aren't that different? Like there's a setup and then there's a payoff. In your memoir, your daughter answers a question at school. What did you learn from your mother? Your daughter answers that you were optimistic. I find you optimistic and I am a fundamentally optimistic person. So my question, I wonder if you think telling the truth, being honest is the fundamentally optimistic thing and that's where your daughter got that from. Is truth-telling fundamentally optimistic? Oh my gosh, that's a great question. Because if you were 
cynical, maybe you would think the stakes are so high. How is it possibly worth the risk, the potential heat that you would take for telling the truth? I don't believe in lying. It seems like it's always going to catch up with you. And usually the lie is worse than whatever it's draped over and trying to conceal. It just makes you a bigger hole. I write in the book that I believe in honesty as care. I think part of honesty, whether it's with your partner or your boss or a coworker or your children, it's about respect. I respect you enough to tell you the truth. As I understand it from the memoir... Your parents are right down the road, but once a week, you all gather for meals. In high school, I had grand plans of getting the hell out of town. As most 16-year-olds who read a lot of Jack Kerouac and live in central Ohio, you're not going to stick around. You don't want to live your parents' life. You're going to go have big adventures and do big things and have a big life. I ended up sticking around for lots of different reasons. And now that I have kids... In my mind, at least, I had responsibility to them to stay put. I'm committed to staying in this place until my youngest is out of high school, at least. I think I'm deeply Midwestern. I feel like the imaginations of my brain are strange, but I really do try to write in a way that is accessible and not just people who read a lot of poetry will understand because I want it to sound like me and frankly... What I sound like is somebody who speaks a lot in metaphor, who makes a lot of inappropriate jokes, who has a self-deprecating sense of humor. Right. So not all of that comes across necessarily in the poems. Like poem is a made thing. It's easier, I think, to scrub out those pieces of your personality and storytelling voice from a poem. Honestly, the joys of being able to stretch my legs a little bit in prose and in the memoir was getting to be more fully my regular, not writer, self in writing. I was approaching this book and the idea of narrative in such a tentative way because I consider myself more of a lyric poet. So I'm not doing a ton of storytelling in my poems. And then tasked with extending a narrative over 300 pages and however many thousands of words, I just thought, how does a poet do that? How can I build this book and tell this story in a way that is true to me, but that also acknowledges some of my own trepidation about doing this kind of deep dive in the first place? Because the idea of telling my life as a story in a lot of ways feels false. Mm -hmm. Because when we think about a narrative, we think about a, a certain level of cohesion And someone asked me about this book, did you outline it beforehand? And I was like, as if you could outline your life. No, I didn't outline it. I wrote it in pieces and then assembled it and color coded everything. And it was an absolute mess as is life. But the meta aspect of the book, I knew would be a love it or loathe it choice. And that for every reader who thought, oh, this is cool. She's thinking about storytelling as she tells the story. There would also be a reader who's like, I don't want to hear about this. I just want to disappear into the narrative as if I'm watching a movie or reading a novel without being reminded that this person is a writer trying to craft a tale. Yeah, And so you can't be everything to everyone, right? In the book, there is a scene that is repeated. You see your uh, ex-husband's open bag and inside there's a postcard and there's a couple pieces of writing that haunt you. 
you and your ex-husband met in a creative writing class as undergraduates. That whole relationship stemmed from your poet. He was a playwright. He went on to a career in law and were publishing books. And then this poem of yours, Good Bones, went viral. It really was a seismic shift in your life. Almost like when you got struck by lightning, what have you learned? The reasons that we begin a relationship with someone or the things that bring us together can ultimately be things that wrench us apart. Lightning hits literally and figuratively in my life in this book. I have heard from so many people who thought they were going into a, a kind of partnership with their eyes wide open. Everybody knew what was important to them and everyone had clear expectations about how it was going to go. Right. But then that's not how life works, right? Then kids enter the picture or somebody gets a promotion or loses a job or gets a really devastating diagnosis or is suddenly disabled. Life is full of surprises and there's no way to have a contract or deal right. when you enter a relationship that that necessarily holds without constant recalibration and to use contractual language, renegotiation. Right. And I right. think the relationships that survive for 50 years aren't relationships where the people at 70 are the same as they were when they were 20. I don't believe that's the secret. Right. I believe there are people who, when lightning struck, whatever way that it did, Going from two kids to three, going from this kind of job to this kind of job, having to move away from family, whatever the thing is, we're able to sit down together and recalibrate that as a family without resentment. I don't even know how to actually, I, I don't know how that works. So, magical and miraculous. I get the feeling you have a great me memory. You, I have a good memory, but as I get older, I know that a lot of people don't have that memory. And so perhaps yeah. they're not constructing that present contract with the memory in mind. I love that idea because it's about, in some ways, maintaining a relationship with your former selves. And if you lose touch with all of those people that you used to be, and if you lose touch with the people that your partner or friend also used to be, then right. you find yourself at a stage in life where it's too easy to look up and realize, do we even know each other? Like, what what happened? Right. And that kind of cognitive dissonance is something that I really struggled with as I was writing the book. And in some ways, it's not solvable. It's right. not something I can just be, well, I'm done with that. I figured that out and can set it down. I think I'll have cognitive dissonance about some of those things for the rest of my life. There are parts in the memoir where you talk about getting physically fit. you got the runner's app that you use, and you're doing yoga and stuff like that. Can you talk a little bit about that, how it helped you through rough times? I can tell you that I'm not doing it anymore. As I was getting divorced, I was like, I need to do something to get the stress out of my body. My therapist was like, it's not enough to be processing this in your mind because the stress is living in your body. If you're not sleeping, if you're losing weight or gaining weight or whatever, but if you feel exhausted all the time, it's because you're trying to intellectualize things, but it's living in your tissue. And so I did, for a time, really work at being better to my body, more for stress release than anything else. And now I was joking with someone recently that I, th I think I'm in my 5K to couch period, <laughs> which is not great. 
But I, I guess on the flip side of that is it's not great and I should be doing more physically, but it's also in some ways a symbol to me that I'm sleeping okay. I feel better physically. And right. so I'm in a different place where I'm not carrying the stress right. in my body the way that I was, say, four years ago. Amen. I wrote that. In the memoir you describe where you go for some run, it's hard, but then there's a time where you surprise yourself with your abilities. I think you say something that's really wonderful to be able to surprise yourself and you just start laughing. I took a run and I got home to my street. I was exhausted and just leaned over and put my hands on my knees and just started cracking up because I just thought, who would have thought that I could do this? And of course, the this is bigger than just the run. This is like, how did I survive? Yes. All of this, it's still amazing to me, looking back on the last five years, the person who reached the hand into the bag and pulled out the things that turned everything inside out could not have imagined where any of this would go. Like any of the bad stuff coming, I didn't know the pandemic was going to happen. There's plenty of bad stuff that's happened between then and now. But there are also some, frankly, pretty miraculous, wonderful, beautiful things that I could not have conceived of. And so the ability of us to surprise ourselves and the ability of life to surprise us, not always in painful ways, that fundamental optimism. I don't know what's coming. I have no idea what the rest of today or tomorrow or the next day will bring. It's probably going to be a mixed bag. Right. But I know at least some of what's going to happen is going to be surprising in a really wonderful way. And I know that based on past history, I can handle whatever the bad stuff is. Now you are doing a Substack called For Dear Life. There's a way in which the Substack feels like it's a continuation of the memoir. Is that a fair thing to think or am I just being dumb? No, you're not being dumb. One of the themes in the memoir is the ability to lean into your creative life and not make it smaller than it needs to be, especially in order to accommodate other people. It's been a really invigorating space for me to be able to show my process and have a direct conversation with readers and to use it as a place to lean in. Like, this is what I do. This is what I want to spend my time doing. This is who I am. What are your thoughts on social media right now? I don't think we're at the end of it, but it certainly feels like the Wild West out there right now. When I was dreaming up the Substack, I wanted something chewier than I was able to do. Something longer form. I never had a blog. I'm a Luddite. I don't even know how to type. These two little fingers are the only ones that get anything done in the house. So when Twitter was bought and then people started fleeing, I realized, oh, I built Keep Moving basically happened on Twitter. Good Bones went viral because of Twitter and Instagram. And what happens when you've built a a following and a community of writers and readers in a space that you don't own, can't control? And also, you don't even have anyone's real names or emails. You can't take it with you. I just remember seeing people fleeing and wondering, okay, if this whole thing collapses, How do I keep in touch with these people? How do I maintain these conversations that have been really nourishing to me? And are real relationships. Some of them I've never met and they're real friends. And now we FaceTime and text and it's jumped the track of social media into one-on-one communication, but we still have never met. 
people, right. when I'm in their city or they're in my city, we actually get together and then we get to be in real life friends, which is nice. Right. They're genuine interactions. It's not like a surface level thing for me. And so when I was conceiving of the Substack, I just thought, how do I build a space where I'm able to create the shop, keep in right. touch with people? I don't have the character limit. So if I want to talk a little bit more long form and share announcements and have conversations and give behind the scenes peeks about things, have craft conversations, I can. It does feel separate from social media to right. me because of right. the space that I'm not at the mercy of an algorithm. I don't own some stack, so they could go crazy too, but I'm trusting yeah. them not to. So if somebody was going to go check out your Substack for Dear Life, I know there's one through line where you're taking apart your poems and you're showing the process of conception and the evolution of a poem. Are there other through lines? Because you had this one killer essay, You Are Not For Everyone. I did a series of pep talks on my Substack and that was one of them. You Are Not For Everyone, which is really a pep talk to me but also anyone else who needs to hear it. I think the general through line of all of the stuff I do in that space is about demystifying the creative process and also the writing life. We're just human beings making things. A poem is a made thing. So, hey, you want to see how I made it? Because it started out insane and messy and also bad. I have to not be embarrassed to be like, yeah, this is what the first draft looked like, y'all. It was bad. Right, right. And maybe you don't even like the finished poem, so the the first one doesn't seem so bad to you. Showing that we're all just people, that nothing springs fully formed from any of us in some miraculous way. Even the writers that you think are doing well and have a wide readership, we are still struggling with fear and anxiety and imposter syndrome, and we're still getting bad reviews, and there's still internet snark. Being on a New York Times bestseller list doesn't exempt you from the feelings of being a human being in the world or making art in a world that is oftentimes resistant (laughs) to receiving art. I always say it's incredible how bad my writing can be at times and just learning to be comfortable with that and having faith that you'll make it through and then eventually something good will come out. I teach at Columbia sometimes and I tell the students, look, if your writing is terrible, that's not a sign that you're not supposed to be a writer. Just keep writing. Keep going. Something really good could come out of it. You'll surprise yourself. There's that essential optimism again, right? Like I'm reminded every time I start a poem and it's bad because they all start bad at it. Let's right. be honest. Every piece of writing starts out bad before it gets good. Yeah. And because we can look bad at it, on previous bits of writing and be like, all those things started out bad too and got good eventually. So the pattern shows that this is bad, but won't stay bad. I trust in my ability to to take this where it needs to go. It might not be this week or even this year, but I trust myself because of all what my experience shows me is that the stuff that is hard at the beginning doesn't stay hard, whether it's running or writing poems or managing your finances or parenting. Thank God it doesn't all feel like the newborn phase. We get 
better at things. That's what we yeah. do. Speaking of parenting and your Substack, there was an announcement recently there about a children's book was born out of your experience with your son. My fifth grader in 2020, it was peak pandemic. When you're an elementary school student and your mom is bleaching the mail and yeah. you're not allowed to see your friend and the air is your enemy, it was an incredibly scary time. And then the kids, at least in my house, were also going through a major upheaval with the divorce. Right. And their fathers moved. We just napalmed our, yeah. our lives in 2020. Yeah. And tuck-ins were difficult. Trying to get a kid to settle down to sleep. I don't know about you, but getting in bed at the end of the day, my brain could just chew on all the things I'm worried about because I suddenly right. have quiet space to lull over everything I've ever done wrong. Like, why did I pronounce that word like that? Why did I think it was biopic and not biopic? Right. I can't believe I said that out loud. And so for my little guy, we have this bedtime routine where I would like lie down with him and we would try to fill him up with good thoughts before bed. But we have this time where we're really going to steep ourselves in positive thoughts, things to look forward to, happy memories, stuff we like to eat, things yeah. that cracked us up. And that would help him relax and ease into sleep. And so I wrote this book called My Thoughts Have Wings about a mom and a child at bedtime. It's an anti-anxiety bedtime story that I hope for readers will help tuck-ins in their house yeah. be a little bit gentler. You mentioned in our correspondence that as an undergraduate, you had seen Kurt Vonnegut give a talk. I went to Ohio Wesleyan, which is a small liberal arts college in central Ohio in Delaware. And he came to our school. And I remember sitting there thinking, I can't believe I'm in the same room as Kurt Vonnegut, there are just certain people, particularly if you're 19 or 20, right. that are so legendary that you just can't imagine, even though he was a Midwesterner, seeing any author in real life when you're right. 18, 19, 20, when you think that books are made by other people in other places, you put them on such a pedestal, seeing someone face to face, hearing them make jokes, hearing them talk, realizing they're just a human being, I think was really formative. I've always loved his books. I love his ability to grapple with the very real darkness in the world, but with such wit and therefore hope. And truth telling, right? Oh, and truth telling. I wanted to ask you, are there three substacks that you might recommend to our listeners? And what about them lights up your heart. Oh my gosh, I read so many Substacks. It's a beautiful thing when I wake up in the morning and my email is automatically full of all of those right. automatic pushes. And I spend my morning having coffee and flitting like a butterfly from flower to flower over there. So read that I am pretty religious about reading or Sari Botten's Oldster. I love Oldster. It's about aging, but it's about more than that. And I love the questionnaire. I got to do it once and I was so honored to be asked. Nico Case did one recently that I loved reading. That was amazing. That's yeah. such a good one. And I think particularly as a woman, the concept of aging in this country is so fraught that yeah. I love the sort of, let's just celebrate that. I'm wiser. I've lived on this yeah. earth for a number of years Thank God I'm not still 20 and making the choices of a 20-year-old. Right. Uh, I love Ulster. Another one I read really consistently is A Men Yell at Me. It's Liz Lenz. I'm a fan of her tweet. Yeah, if you follow her on Twitter, you know the vibe. A journalist in Iowa, also a single mom, 
also a fierce feminist. She does this thing called Dingus of the Week on her Substack. It's brilliant, but it's also funny. She can just eviscerate somebody who doesn't know what they're talking about. So I highly recommend the men yell at me. It's Liz Lenz. And then the other one is something totally different is Alyssa Altman, who's one of my very favorite writers, has a subset called Poor Man's Beast. And that was the name of her blog, which won a James Beard Award. She calls it a narrative journal. And it really is about everything from family to place. Yes, there's food and recipes, Uh, But everything she writes, frankly, even her Instagram captions, Uh she gives so much of herself. Her last memoir was called Motherland, and it was about this fraught relationship with her own mother. And that book for me, it's very different from my memoir, but it was so permission giving because, again, truth telling, right? Being able to say the thing, but also say it with empathy and curiosity and balance and care, I think she shows up to everything she writes with so much nuance and she makes a damn good sentence. I just know if it's a paragraph on Instagram or a whole book or a Substack post, I'm just all in when it's her. I love that. I'm going to go subscribe today. Yay. Is there anything else that you would like to add to anyone out there, since we're both kind of optimists, that people that might be struggling wherever they are in their journey, is there something that you might like to say to them? I have a post-it note that lives on my office window, so I can see it right now. I stuck it up there in 2019. Fall of 2018 to fall of 2019 was the the capital W worst TM for me personally. I didn't even know a pandemic was coming. It was just the, the worst. And so I wrote this quote down and stuck it up on my window in 2019, and it's lived there for four years, and I see it every day. And it says, let everything happen to you, beauty and terror, just keep going. No feeling is final. It's real. So I see that post-it note and I think about that essential optimism, which doesn't mean everything's great. Optimism doesn't mean just turning your head away from the hard things and being la, 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 everything's fine. No, that's not it. It means moving through whatever the thing is and knowing that it's going to change. And so standing in a storm... And knowing enough to know that's not the permanent weather. The example that you said in your memoir and really all your writing is the truth telling in that compassion that you mentioned earlier, the empathy. I think it is hardest to respond to a challenging world with all of those dimensions, with having great feeling and being open to the feeling and speaking to that. It's really incredible. I do think of you as a Gen X icon for what it's worth. Oh my goodness. I I will take that. Where's my Burger King crown? Thank you so much for making the time. No, thanks. This was a lot of fun. This was a great conversation. That was amazing, right? I had a blast. Anyway, so now is when you go by Maggie Smith's new memoir. You could make this place beautiful. Buy two copies. Give one to a friend. I promise they'll be grateful to you forever. Also, I've included a link so that you can go buy this memoir and bookshop. And if you want to go say hi to her on Twitter, you can find her at Maggie Smith Poet. And on Instagram, same at Maggie Smith Poet. Also, you should go subscribe to Maggie Smith's 
beloved and amazing. Newsletter for Dear Light. And you know what else? You should pre-order the children's book we talked about. My thoughts have wings. And if you want to come say hi to me, I'm on Twitter at Gabe Hudson. If you want to subscribe to the newsletter, go to Substack, Curve Vonnegut Radio. On Instagram, I'm Gabe G. Hudson. And if you want to write a review for our show on Apple Podcast app or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts, that would be hugely appreciated. Stay safe out there, people, and I'll see you next time. Peace.